Welcome to the podcast version of Sunday Miscellany, which differs from the radio version for rights reasons. We hope you enjoy the program. I can't remember how I came to be invited to join the Arts Council. I suppose I must have had a letter or even a phone call from the Taoiseach of the day, Gareth Fitzgerald. I'm sure I was expected to be flattered. Instead, I was extremely reluctant. It was the early 1980s. I was young, oh, youngish. I was in the throes of writing a difficult novel, and I couldn't see myself becoming a part of what we lazily think of as the establishment. I consulted my family and my friends. All I could see were having a hard time of it not to laugh. Someone, keeping a straight face, asked if I would be required to wear a suit and tie and attend state banquets and brush up on my schoolboy Irish. No, I thought, no, the thing is impossible. Me, a member of the Arts Council? Then I met the archaeologist Maud Prayer at some reception, rather. Oh, but you must, she said, you must join. She had been a member for many years. She was one of the first women on the council. And she could assure me, she said, that it was a good thing. She told me how many struggling writers were kept going by the odd bursary, how many pictures by living artists were purchased, how many small publishers were funded. And besides, she said, we have great parties. That was the clincher. I'm sure I turned up for the first meeting in flares in a floral shirt with a floppy collar. I did say this was the 80s. Adrian Munnelly was the director, one of the best there has ever been, and Marcin McCullough was a very diligent and punctilious chairman. In those days, the chairman was still the chairman. The morning dragged, though there were moments of interest and even levity. I was very conscious that this was a state board, though the director was insistent on our autonomy and freedom from political interference. My fellow members were impressive, with one or two exceptions. And anyway, it would soon be lunchtime. At lunch, I found to my consternation that no wine was served. This, it was patiently explained to me, was because there would be another session in the afternoon. I could see Maud Prayer seated opposite me, registering my dismay with a glint of amusement. Yes, she said, and that's when the real work is done. And she was right. As the hours dragged on towards tea time, I found myself voting on the distribution of pitifully small amounts of money to a vast range of organisations, most of which I'd never heard of before. Couldn't these decisions be left to the staff, who I could see were formidable people, with far more knowledge of the world of the arts than I possessed? Ah, no, I was assured. Only the executive has executive powers. The staff are merely there to advise. My heart sank. Was I to spend a day like this at the beginning of every month, doling out a few bob here and a few bob there, to frame a few pictures for an exhibition, or to purchase a new fiddle for a promising soloist, or to buy banner shoes for aspiring baby ballerinas. I recalled what Maura had said. This was indeed the real work, and on it a great many real people in the real world pinned their hopes and aspirations. Was there wine served after the meeting, or did we go to the pub? We had a drink, I know that, and certainly I welcomed it. Well, Maura asked me, how did you find your first day? I wonder what answer I gave her. We did have gay times. I recall a particularly convivial weekend at the Tyrone Guthrie Centre at Arnhem in County Monaghan. 
We had our annual general meeting there, spread over two days, and then we relaxed. Indeed, many of us relaxed to the point of stupor. Maura had the best stories, all of them funny. There was, for instance, the one that turned on the name of the Hungarian composer Zoltán Kodály. A tenor had gone into a Dublin music shop, Bacala Piggott's, jointly run for many generations by our chairman's family, and ordered the sheet music for a 19th century Russian ballad, Could I But Express in Song. Returning a week later to inquire if the score had arrived, he was informed that prolonged and diligent searches had failed to turn up the number he had requested, Kodai's buttocks-pressing song. It's true, Morris said. Honestly, I know the singer. She was a dear heart, and I miss her still. Her sense of humour sustained her to the end. When she was diagnosed with esophageal cancer, I took her to lunch at Cook's Café of Blessed Memory. Over our caprese salads, I spoke at length of the poet Philip Larkin, lately dead. Maura let me wax on for some time, then looked at me with a wry smile and said, You do know what he died of, don't you? Too late I did. Cancer of the esophagus. I don't know if my time in the Arts Council did some service to the state. I hope it did. Certainly it did me the service of allowing me to come to know a most delightful woman. Wonderful parties, indeed. In my work as a teacher, I've often had reason to remember a remark of the late great educationalist Dr. John Coulihan. There is a three-letter word which I cherish in the education process, but which is rarely expressed, he said, and that word is joy. I've seen so many students come alive and find their joy in education when they're on a creative adventure. Over the past 16 years, their stories and experiences have shaped the way I teach. It all began with a Viking chief called Turgatius, and a scarecrow competition. A local historian paid a visit to my class of eight and nine-year-olds in Curramore National School, where she recounted the history of Mullingar from its earliest beginnings to the present day. We were introduced to ghosts and ghouls, lords and ladies, heroes and villains. Who knew that we lived in such an eventful locality? My students were intrigued. Later that week, we decided to enter the annual Scarecrow competition in Belvedere House and the students were asked to nominate an interesting character to recreate in Strings and Straw. Hands down, the nomination went to Turgatius, the Viking villain from 837 AD who plundered the riches of the Midlands for seven years until he came to an unfortunate end as he was put into a barrel and rolled down Captain's Hill into the murky waters of Loch Ool. Surely this tale has all the makings of a Disney blockbuster. And so our epic adventure into the Viking era began. The classroom was transformed into a hive of creative activity. 
the fashionistas among us researched in vogue Viking wardrobes and put together a striking ensemble for Arthur Gatius. My young resident jewellers, armed with gold and silver spray paint, crafted Celtic treasures from the contents of the classroom recycling bin. After much deliberation and design, an impressive shield and sword were hung at our Viking side. The hair and makeup department got to work and our humble scarecrow was transformed into a handsome Viking chief with a signature plait in his beard. Every day we immersed ourselves in learning through the eyes of Turgatius. We found out what the local landscape looked like, who was who in the Mullingar social hierarchy at the time and what daily life was like. Finally, Turgatius in all his glory was installed in Belvedere House, standing in his barrel, every inch the Viking who struck fear into the hearts of all who heard his name, his treasure chest filled with plundered loot at his side. Turgatius went on to take pride of place in the festival that year, but each student in my classroom had already taken pride of place, in my estimation, and their own. As a teacher, I am rarely lost for words, but it happened once with my senior infants in the midst of a project I've since called Lear Lakes and Little Learners. We were exploring the story of King Lear and our local Loch Derevara with one of Mullingar's finest printmakers to journey with us along the way. For one little boy, the classroom just was not an easy fit. Desks and chairs made excellent climbing frames. And to keep me on my toes, he invented a hundred different ways to avoid sitting in a seat for more than five minutes at a time. Having to maintain focus and pay attention seemed to sap the joy out of his day. This particular morning, we were talking about the fish we could find in our lakes. I handed out tubs of Play-Doh and craft clay to the students to make a fish and show me how many details they could remember. I was happily settling for two eyes, a mouth and a tail. One by one the students called me over to see their creations and I was delighted to see all they had taken in. Then my young gymnast handed me his creation, an intricate three-dimensional model of the most beautiful fish with such attention to detail, scales, patterns, indents made with pencils, gills, an open mouth, fins and a tail. Tell me about this fish, I said, and David Attenborough could have taken notes as this little boy told me all about the details he had taken the time to create. It turned out he had an aquarium at home full of tropical fish. Talking about something that deeply interested him, he came alive. His creations went on to feature in many of our projects for the rest of that year. And he taught me a valuable lesson about the need to place creativity at the heart of learning so that students can find their voice and be their best selves. As time has passed, I've had the opportunity to learn more about this process from creative champions in the field of education. I've discovered that the simple creativity we embrace in the classroom was forging habits of mind that would last a lifetime and pay dividends for my young students as they leave their school days far behind. 
I'm very grateful for these educationalist insights, but I will also be forever indebted to my students whose expressions of creativity have touched my heart, given me such joy and made this teacher feel truly alive. Throughout his long career, Eamon de Valera made much of things of the spirit. Speaking in Athlone at the opening of Ireland's first high-powered broadcasting station in February 1933, he suggested it will enable the world to hear the voice of one of the oldest and in many respects one of the greatest of the nations. According to Dev, Ireland had an abundance of talent to offer that world. Her gifts are the fruit of qualities of mind and heart developed by centuries of eventful history. The Irish genius has always stressed spiritual and intellectual rather than material values. That is the characteristic that fits the Irish people in a special manner for the task, now a vital one, of helping to save Western civilization. And he went on. The great material progress of recent time coming in a world where false philosophies already reigned, has distorted men's sense of proportion. The material has usurped the sovereignty that is the right of the spiritual. Dev was certainly not modest in his declaration of our distinctiveness and our mission. Matching that praise and ambition with practical support for the arts, however, was another matter altogether. While Dev reigned politically supreme from 1932 to 1948. By the time Thomas Bodkin, the former director of the National Gallery, wrote a report on the arts in 1951 at the request of Dev's successor as Taoiseach, John A. Costello, he concluded bleakly No civilised nation of modern times has neglected arts to the extent that we have during the past 50 years. Bodkin's bold assertion punctured some of the pious rhetoric about the Irish genius as the saviour of Western civilisation. His report also led to the creation of the Arts Council, which held its first meeting in Dublin 70 years ago. Both de Valera, now back in power, and Costello addressed the members of the new council. Dev was up to his old spiritual tricks again. The pressure of material forces, he told the new council, has taken away from it, I fear, in many respects, the primacy once held by things of the spirit. Your task is to endeavour to restore that primacy. Costello told the members, In Ireland for many years we have suffered almost complete neglect of art, literature, drama and the theatre, and there could be no nationality without art. The emergence of the Arts Council heralded an attempt to forge a new relationship between the state and the arts, a relationship that had been fraught and difficult since the creation of the state 30 years previously. In 
and it remained fraught. The vague insistence that the Council restore the primacy of things of the Spirit inevitably ran into a wall of parsimoniousness. The funding allocated in its first year was just £1,100. Writer Sean O'Fueline, appointed director of the Council in 1956, a part-time position, resigned in 1959 because, as he put it, the work was futile since there was so little money. The Council often seemed isolated and adrift without the anchor of an overall defined arts policy. Carving out a role in administering and encouraging the arts inevitably involved consistent pleas for more funding and broader areas of responsibility. The Council's membership, direction and innovation reflected the changing currents and contexts of our recent history. It has had two priests at the helm in its 70-year existence and four women directors. In the 1960s, its focus shifted away from support for music, drama and dance towards fine visual arts. It hosted travelling exhibitions and bought art by Irish artists. It also endured breaches of the so-called arms-length principle, with politicians and civil servants quietly taking control of arts issues that had previously been debated only at council meetings. Something of a fight back came with the Arts Act of 1973, which created a new Arts Council that could appoint a full-time director and was composed of 16 ordinary members. But they were all appointed by the Taoiseach. More emphasis was placed on training, exhibition, performance and regionalisation and the Council began to take responsibility for the Abbey and Gate Theatres instead of the Department of Finance, perhaps a poisoned chalice. The Council introduced bursaries, scholarships and grants, established an affiliation of artists, Eastana, in 1981, and had a close and productive relationship with its Northern Irish counterpart. One campaign resulted in a 1987 white paper, Access and Opportunity, which affirmed the government's commitment to preventing any erosion in the position of the Arts Council and set a target of doubling provision for the arts. An increase in the Council's funding of almost 70% between 1988 and 1993 and by 2002, a combination of state aid and national lottery funding that came close to €50 million Euro, were a reflection of economic recovery, confidence and optimism. Some of the historical regional imbalances were rectified during the Celtic Tiger era with an enhanced role for local government and impressive new arts centres in provincial towns. Though subsequently, the council was of course to find itself once again at the mercy of extreme economic cycles. But let's return to things of the spirit. The artist in Ireland was too often left, in the words of poet John Montague, with a kind of self-conscious, isolated bravado, in the invidious position of spiritual director to the intelligentsia. The COVID pandemic brought into sharper focus such isolation and the precariousness of artistic income, but also the interdependency between culture, identity and citizenship. The upheavals and fears of recent history and current affairs bring home to us that things of the spirit count for a great deal. But as the Arts Council has argued for 70 years now, 
That artistic spirit cannot thrive without a coherent, properly funded philosophy of culture. Winter of 1964, the year of my own birth, in a house in Moornach Fjog, Kule, a raggle-taggle group of singers gathered in the small sitting room, facing the keys of a modified Steck pianola. The hands on the keys on this inauspicious occasion were those of composer Sean O'Riada. And this would be the first of many such evenings that would transform the musical landscape of this area. And for some present, it marked the beginning of a seven-year quest that would totally transform their musical world. Orida's initial aim was to establish a choir, Cor Hule, to perform in the local church a mass he intended to write. He had the backing of the local curate, Father O'Connor, and in Kule he found the raw materials necessary to the task. Those present were hardly trained singers in the generally accepted sense of that term. They were, in essence, a random collection of well-regarded local performers of traditional songs. Orida's arrival heralded what I would term a deliberate reactivation of the local music culture. And this involved an intensive trawl through old collections, and one in particular, the Freeman Collection. Alan Martin Freeman, a native of Tooting, South London, spent about ten weeks in the parish of Ballyvourney in 1914 and there sat with four local singers patiently recording, without the aid of any machinery save a pen and paper, their age-old songs. These would be first published in 1920 by the Journal of the Folk Song Society. And from that collection, Peg O'Donoghue's rendition of the beautiful Ashling Yal would become Sean O'Reilly's party piece on the piano. It would also be one of the songs first learned from the collection by famed Shano singer Dermud Mikey O'Sullivan, and eventually by myself. Of Peg O'Donoghue, Freeman said the following. About 78 in 1914 illiterate, has lived laterally in the English-speaking end of the parish. The best natural musician I met in the district. She can hum a tune without the words and sing through a long verse in short sections, pausing and even repeating sections, and scarcely ever alters the pitch in the process. She is infirm, emotional, excitable, and I seldom can get down more than one short song from her at a sitting. When singing a complete song, she becomes ecstatic. I've always been struck by Freeman's last phrase here, and what he does not tell us beyond the word ecstatic leaves us with a sense that in fact the experience was an unforgettable one, 
one which would have to be experienced in situ and could not easily be conveyed by the writer's hand. It suggests a liminal area best left to the moment and to silent, personal recollection. I've carried that image of the singer achieving a special grace through the act of song with me, down through the years, as a strangely ineffable, talismanic metaphor for what might be possible in our music, what might be achievable in the performance of these musical objects, radiant of an intangible and beguiling beauty. Coulet would come to be seen as the last step in Orida's cyclic development as an artist, a journey that brought him from a familial traditional music background through the explorations and serialism of his Nomoi compositions and back again, transformed by the spectacular success of his film music settings from Misha Eire and Circe to that of a public figure experimenting with and extolling the virtues of a native ancient and noble music culture and language as he saw it. For some, particularly those who justifiably looked to Orida as the last hope for the development of an Irish art music, this atavistic migration would come to be interpreted as a catastrophic failure and betrayal of his true gifts. For the formerly solo singers of Coulet, however, Mostly drawn from small farming backgrounds, his philosophical and musical about-turn would be a cultural and economic renaissance. Orida's reputation and panache in time secured new industries for the region and gave its music culture a platform and confidence it had never before experienced. For traditional musicians more broadly, his presence was and likely continues to be a point of ignition, an unfolding genesis of creativity that would transform the Irish musical landscape. And as for the Freeman collection, this time capsule of song and sound, in bringing this treasure home, Orida diverted many rivers, temporarily arrested some seemingly unstoppable cultural processes changed course and revisioned a generation's cultural gaze, and in particular, our own at times tawdry relationship with our native music culture, our language, and our sense of self. He re-emplaced us in an act of temporal transposition, to borrow a musical phrase, bringing us back to our place, binding us to it and to each other. And again, I think of Peg O'Donoghue, sitting there in the room with Freeman, releasing the grain of her voice, the her of the song, and being quite simply transfigured. That portion of an experience which, being so physically intense, radiates through, because of, and then perhaps beyond, the embodied moment. As a ten-year-old, tackling for the first time this great song, this is something I do remember feeling. And not all songs have afforded me the context for these kinds of experiences. But Ashling Yal was the first, 
and its engendered ecstasies still have the power to surprise and to lift me out of myself. When I listen to the tape of myself as a child singing Ashling Gal, it's as though I look back from a faraway place and see once again that little boy stood atop a box, his neck craned to send the song which he once so possessed, skipping along the strings of that grand piano way back when, a brick on the sustain pedal, as though to keep forever the voice racing like light towards his own event horizon. When I think about the Arts Council, I think about it as the financial saviour of my youth. I'm talking about my early 20s when I was writing my first slew of plays. And I'm talking about three people in particular I always associate with the Arts Council. Tom McIntyre, Phelan Donlan and Lar Cassidy. I didn't know the Arts Council existed until Tom McIntyre said to me one day, you should apply for a bursary from the Arts Council. I said, you mean someone will give me money to write? He said, raise your sights a little. I was on the dole at the time, living in a bedsit in Rathmines, and three days out of seven, I was literally penniless. Tom, very much an outsider and a wild soul, was generous to me in those days, generous with his praise of a fledgling playwright and generous with his time. I was often invited to his dinner table. He once cooked me a rabbit. There was always lashings of red wine and mad talk and beautiful poetry recited and savoured, along with the cheese and the wine. Tom taught me how to live as a writer, how to keep the faith in the word. You take care of your sentences and the world will take care of the rest. Around that time I had the good fortune to meet Phelan Donlan, who was head of theatre at the Arts Council. And through Phelan I met Lar Cassidy, who was head of literature. Both were kind men, both were interested in my writing and took me seriously when many didn't, including myself. There's so much doubt in a young writer. The bar is high and you wonder if you have it. Can you keep going? Will you ever write anything worth reading? These two men seemed to think I had something worth investing in. Those were the days when you could just turn up at Merrion Square and ask to speak to Phelan or Lar. I don't remember ever making an appointment. Once I showed up to weep about a play I had written, Oolaloo. It was on at the Peacock and had been savaged by the critics and then swiftly taken off in my absence without my knowing. I was in Romania, supposed to be translating a play by Marin Sarescu. I don't know what I was doing there without a word of Romanian and Sarescu's wife was deeply suspicious of me. God knows I was suspicious of myself. Anyway, I turned up at Phelan Donlan's office and he tucked me in like a distraught daughter and listened to my rant and made me tea and when I'd calmed down, he asked me about my next play and what it was about. You go a long way to find that sort of 
decency in this world. Young writers need someone at their back. And when I look back now, I realise how lucky I was that my paths crossed with these three men. All family men, all had daughters. And I suppose being older and wiser, they knew how difficult it was going to be for me. Because at that time, the theatre was a boys game. And in my innocence, I didn't even realise that. But they did. And they kept me upright and kept me writing. The other memory I associate with the Arts Council is Lara Cassidy's funeral. He died young, leaving small children, and it was a terribly sad affair. The church was packed with family, friends, relatives, but also with poets, playwrights, novelists, painters, musicians, composers. I couldn't say I knew Lara Cassidy very well, but on the occasions I was in his company, he was always very kind to me. The year before, he had taken a bunch of writers and poets and musicians to a festival in Germany, Frankfurt, I think it was, the book fair, with Lara as the ringleader. It was my first trip away with other writers, and that was an eye-opener in itself. But I remember Lar and his kindness and his encouragement of me and the other younger writers on the jaunt. So here we were at his funeral to pay our respects and to acknowledge the passing of one of our own tribe who believed passionately in the arts and through his work and dedication and wide-ranging knowledge touched so many lives and helped so many artists on their journey. This morning's programme was a special collaboration with the Arts Council to mark its 70th anniversary. The scripts you heard this morning included Wonderful Parties by John Banville. Shirley, Shirley Furlong gave us joy in the classroom. Things of the Spirit was by Dermot Ferreter. Bright Vision, the Ballyvorney Collection and Sean O'Reda was by Erla or Leonard. And Marina Carr brought us Keeping the Faith. The first piece of music you heard this morning was Oh Could I But Express in Song, sung by Paul Robeson. Then we had Rolling in the Barrel, O'Neill's March and Tralee Jail, that of course by Cormac Begley. The Rights of Man and King of the Fairies was played by Anne-Marie O'Farrell on harp and Ellen Cranich on flute. And a tape of Erlo Leonard, age 10, singing Ashling Gyal. You can read and listen back to all of these scripts as well on rte.ie forward slash culture and to listen back to this morning's programme in full, visit rte.ie radio forward slash radio one forward slash Sunday hyphen miscellany. Sunday miscellany's broadcast coordinator is Carolyn Dempsey. The producer is Sarah Binchy. Lastly, coming up in two weeks' time, a Sunday miscellany live event, which you may be interested in, is taking place at the Pavilion Theatre in Dunleary in County Dublin with words and music to mark Bloomsday. Guests on the day will include Declan Kybert, 
Uh, Joe O'Connor is also going to be there. Emer O'Kelly, Colin Murphy, Rachel Hegarty, and also Barry Gleeson and more. That's Sunday Miscellany live 8pm Sunday the 5th of June at the Pavilion Theatre Dunleary, County Dublin. And for tickets, you can go to paviliontheatre.ie. You've been listening to the Sunday Miscellany podcast. For more from us, you can follow the programme on Facebook, Twitter, Spotify or Apple Podcasts. Just search for RTE Sunday Miscellany.